Yesterday, we spoke about what uh, Tantra actually means, that it means a stream of continuity that goes on forever. We have the basis level of that, which is our mental continuum with the Buddha nature factors. We have the uh, pathway level at which uh, these Buddha nature factors no longer give rise to samsaric rebirth as, and samsaric experiences they do in our ordinary lives, but instead they give up, they uh, give rise to uh, those things that are similar to the result that we're wanting to achieve and which will uh, help us to achieve that result. So these Buddha figures, these Yidams, for example, and on the uh, resultant level, these Buddha nature factors will transform and give rise to the enlightening bodies of a Buddha. So Tantra means this uh, continuity goes on and on and on. And uh, continuity uh, or Tantra also uh, uh, has the uh, connotation of a loom on which we weave together all the different uh, insights and understandings that we've developed in the Sutra path. Uh, sutra path, we're working with uh, the uh, emphasis on the causes that will bring about the bodies of a Buddha. And in Tantra, we focus on something similar to the result, which will be uh, imagining ourselves in the form of these uh, uh, Buddha figures with already all the uh, qualities of a Buddha, like uh, the enlightening influence of a Buddha to be able to benefit all beings. Our speech is uh, in an enlightening form, like uh, that of uh, mantras, represented by mantras. Uh, our environment is uh, uh, pure, like that of uh, these mandalas, these pure lands. And uh, our minds are pure in terms of uh, understanding of voidness, bodhicitta, etc. So we have all these purities that uh, we imagine in our uh, Tantra practice. So imagining that uh, we're there now is uh, very much in accordance with bodhicitta in which we are focusing on our own individual enlightenments that have not yet happened, but which can happen on the basis of Buddha nature. So all the teachings on uh, Buddha nature, bodhicitta, uh, renunciation, we want to renounce the basis level and uh, turn toward the pure level of uh, the result through uh, the pathway level and the understanding of voidness which is, or emptiness, which will allow this whole transformation. All of these things uh, fit together. So Tantra is a way of weaving it together very nicely so that uh, it all comes in one package. And uh, what we want to do is to be able to generate all of that in one state of mind, in one moment, because uh, this is what we're aiming to be able to do with uh, the attainment of enlightenment. And we have uh, seen that uh, there are uh, two ways in which uh, we can approach this, which uh, seems to be more in uh, accordance with uh, our Western experience, which would be a Dharma light version, not taking into account uh, rebirth, but just focusing on this lifetime and the real thing, uh, Tantra or Dharma, 
which uh, brings in uh, rebirth. And uh, rebirth is especially important in terms of understanding what uh, we're transforming, which is this whole process of uh, the uh, basis level giving rise to uncontrollably recurring rebirth, uh, which is then the basis for experiencing uh, suffering of suffering, so suffering of pain, unhappiness, and the suffering of change, our ordinary happiness that never lasts, that uh, never satisfies, and so on. So this uh, third form of suffering, uh, the suffering of uh, suffering, suffering of change, the third one is the uh, all-pervasive suffering, and that all-pervasive suffering is that uh, uh, our uh, so-called tainted aggregates, you know, our body, speech, and you know, all the factors that make up each moment of our experience, which can be classified just for our understanding in terms of five aggregates or five groups. These are the basis for being able to experience the first two types of suffering, unhappiness or happiness to put it in, ordinary happiness to put it in simple terms. And this is brought on by our ignorance, our confusion about reality, our not knowing or knowing in an inverted way how things exist, how we exist, how everything exists, that uh, generates further and further uh, perpetuation of these aggregates, all of that's described in the 12 links of dependent arising. These are very, very important to understand that uh, as a result of the previous uh, compulsive behavior that we've engaged in, that uh, this ripens into many, many things, but it ripens into what we experience, what happens to us, our instinctive behavior, and uh, how we experience it, some level of happiness or unhappiness. This is important to understand in terms of karma. Karma often is translated as uh, actions. And uh, this is uh, probably because the uh, Tibetan word for it is the colloquial word for actions. However, that has to be understood more carefully because if you take that literally, then what are the troublemakers? Well, it's karma and disturbing emotions. If the troublemaker are actions, then all you have to do is stop doing anything and you would be free of suffering and free of karma. So that obviously is not the meaning. Therefore, <laughs> one has to uh, uh, look a little bit more deeply at uh, what is uh, the whole point in the discussion of karma. And uh, uh, thinking about it more and more deeply and looking at the definitions and the explanations and so on, what I think it is uh, referring to is the compulsiveness of our actions. This is a mental state. If you look at it uh, in terms of one set of uh, commentaries or sort of a subtle energy is involved with uh, our uh, behavior. There's a compulsiveness about it, and that's the problem, that we compulsively act in a 
under the influence of disturbing emotions, greed, attachment, anger, hostility, uh, confusion, uh, closed-mindedness, all of these sort of things. And that leads to destructive behavior. So that's compulsiveness that's there because of the previous uh, tendencies and habits that we've built up. Or compulsively, we are do-gooders, which is, uh, uh, you know, to use the Western word, quite neurotic, you know, perfectionism. You know, you're a perfectionist, you have to, you know, clean the house over and over again, and wash your hands over and over again, and offer your help to everybody, even though they don't want it and they don't need it. Uh, this type of uh, compulsive do-good, <laughs> doing good is, uh, you know, you're never satisfied with what you write. You're always correcting it further and further and further and never finish this type of uh, stuff. That's compulsive. And that's the problem. That's what we want to get rid of so that our behavior is based on compassion rather than compulsive, uh, you know, unconscious drives. That's what karma is talking about. And, uh, as a and that obviously is something that uh, causes uh, difficulties and we want to get over it. So with that understanding, then the discussion of karma makes sense. Now, it also ripens in our feeling of happiness and unhappiness. And uh, with these uh, feelings of unhappiness and unhappiness, then we have um, this thirst is the actual uh, uh, Sanskrit word that's usually translated as clinging. But uh, thirst is, is the literal word in Sanskrit. And so you're dying of, you know, like with thirst, you know, that uh, I have to get rid of this unhappiness. And with uh, thirst, you know, you have a little bit of happiness, but then, you know, oh, I have to have more because you're, you're dying of thirst. This type of uh, thing, I don't want to be parted from this uh, happiness that I have. And then the whole ego trip comes in. You know, me, 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 I want to have this. You know, I want to be free of this suffering. And that activates the uh, karmic tendencies. And then it throws, you know, one into the next moment and specifically into the next rebirth. So this whole process is this all-pervasive suffering that is the distinguishing feature of First Noble Truth, one of the four features of this true suffering. This is specific to what Buddha taught. You know, other people, you know, even animals know to uh, want to overcome pain and unhappiness. And uh, other uh, religions as well teach uh, that uh, worldly happiness is problematic and, you know, seek some sort of paradise type of thing. That's uh, nothing special or unique to Buddhism. But uh, what is unique to Buddhism to Buddhist teachings is this all-pervasive suffering as the true. This is truly suffering, is what uh, Buddha said. So that's what we're trying to overcome with both sutra methods and tantra methods. So if we understand that, then we want to, with the highest class of Tantra, we want to transform this whole process of death, bardo, and rebirth so that uh, instead of activating 
these karmic tendencies that will just propel, you know, further rebirth and further basis for more and more suffering. We want to, you know, with a, a blissful state of mind rather than, you know, the ordinary type of feelings that one would have, focus on voidness. And in that way, we can bring about generation of Buddha bodies from these networks that we have, network of positive force. I don't speak about a network of negative force, but uh, there's that as well. And this network of deep awareness, in other words, how our minds actually function. So when you start to look more deeply at Tantra, you find out, you discover how sophisticated it is in terms of dealing with this whole process of uh, basically <laughs> how our consciousness uh, goes up and down in terms of uh, different levels. That has to do with uh, movement of energy, actually. We want to look at it uh, more deeply. Movement of energy, because when we speak about uh, mind in Buddhism, we're not speaking about a thing. I find that it is uh, much easier to understand if we uh, conceive of it in terms of mental activity. There's a certain mental or cognitive activity that uh, is going on all the time, moment to moment. So you look at the definition and what is uh, happening all the time is there is the uh, arising of, well, it's usually translated as clarity and awareness. So what is clarity? Look at the definition. And it is making of an appearance to arise. So what is that? That's a mental hologram. If you think about it, that's what actually is going on with mental activity. Even from a Western point of view, you have, let's say, with sight, photons coming and striking, you know, various cells, and it's translated into electric impulse and chemical uh, impulses, and that goes in various regions in the brain, and somehow there's some mental hologram that uh, is a sight. And that's what cognition is. There's the arising of some mental hologram, but it's not just the arising of some image in a mirror. There's also a cognitive aspect, uh, some sort of uh, engagement, cognitive engagement, either knowing, not knowing, confused, how you know it, emotion, feeling, some sort of engagement, cognitive engagement. And these two are not consecutive. It's not that uh, first a sight arises and then you see it. It's not that first a thought arises and then you think it. It's one and the same thing, just looked at from two points of view. So, and then there's some energy which is involved with that as well. It's called the winds. And uh, in figurative uh, Dharma language. And that's another looking at the whole activity from another point of view, from the more physical or energy point of view. 
So all of this is uh, very much involved with this whole process of, you know, this, uh, these, this level of mental activity. Uh, what is going to be its physical basis? The physical basis going to be uh, subtle forms like dreams, forms, these sort of things? Is it going to be uh, gross physical elements? You know, in terms of, uh, uh, don't just think in terms of the body, but uh, think in terms of uh, uh, sights. You're seeing gross forms. You're hearing gross sounds. It's not the same as dreaming them or imagining them or visualizing them. So what are the you know, forms of physical phenomenon that are going to uh, be involved with these uh, holograms? Now that becomes very interesting because uh, when it is uh, with our gross body, what happens is that these energies run wild and uh, the mental activity is very much uh, manifold. It's not just one thing. We have the discussion of the five aggregates. Very, very helpful to realize that uh, in each moment, what we are experiencing is, um, can be analyzed. And you can analyze it in terms of there's a feeling component of happy or unhappy, there are uh, all sorts of emotions that uh, are part of it. There are the uh, so-called mechanical aspects of it, like concentration, interest, um, these sort of things, discrimination, distinguishing. We need to be able to distinguish. This is usually called the aggregate of recognition, which is a, also a misleading translation. You know, you have a sense field and we're not just seeing colored shapes or pixels. We're able to distinguish, you know, one group of colored shapes from another. We might not know what it is, but we can distinguish light from dark. Even an infant can do that. Even an animal can do that. So that has to be there. Otherwise, we can't know anything if we can't distinguish you know, anything within our sense field, when there's a problem with that, you have autism. So, that's going on there. And there, you know, in this moment, in each moment, and hologram, and there can be various senses going on at the same time. You can see and hear at the same time, so it's multiple. And this is every moment, every, every moment. And when the energies, the winds, are functioning on the basis of these gross elements, and what we're experiencing has come from our confusion about how we exist, you know, that I'm some sort of, you know, there's a little me sitting in my head at the control board, you know, pressing the buttons and using the body, you know, what should I do now? What do people think of me? 
you know, the one that's worrying, the author of the voice that goes on in our heads. We think there's a little me in there, and that's the one that we're worried about, isn't it? So that's completely an illusion. It's not like that. But nevertheless, there's continuity. It's very interesting when you uh, ask people to uh, bring a collection of photos of themselves spanning representative periods from their life, from you know being an infant and all the various stages of childhood and uh, teenage and adult and you know depending on how old they are various uh, stages of the life and you ask how do you know that's me they don't look anything alike what makes that me then that helps them to start realizing you know what actually are we talking about when we talk about me in the Buddhist uh, teachings? It's not something solid, identifiable. I mean, it's individual. I didn't become you. But uh, something solid, findable that doesn't change and that uh, you know, is there the whole time. Nevertheless, we can distinguish that it's me. from the side of the mind, not from the side of the pictures. So we have uh, this process going on. This is the basis. And that's what we want to transform. And when we, that mental activity is associated with this, you know, has as its basis in, in a body, which is gross, with these gross elements, then the energies go wild. And when there are disturbing emotions and ignorance and so on, the more disturbing the emotions are, the more the energy is disturbed. This is why I like the term disturbing emotions for klesha. Go to the definition. It's a state of mind which, when it arises, makes you feel, uh, lose your peace of mind and lose self-control. It's a definition. Makes you lose peace of mind and lose self-control. It's always so helpful to look at the definitions. Then we know what they're talking about. So, states of mind are disturbing. When they're disturbing, then we act compulsively. It activates karma. You don't quiet down and you're not able to discriminate and think. So what we try to do is just as in the process of uh, dying, that uh, the gross elements of the body are no longer the uh, support for that mental activity. So it gradually withdraws. Then and a similar process happens when we fall asleep or faint or go under anesthesia. So mental activity is no longer involved with gross objects, gross elements. 
And in a sense, it's withdrawing from the internal elements as well. So it gets finer and finer, more and more subtle. In other words, the movement of the winds are less. And you finally get to the clear light state. We speak of clear light. It doesn't mean that it's like a light bulb in our head or uh, anything like that. But it has many qualities that, uh, like in the Gyulama, the uh, Uttara Tantra furthest lasting stream, always uses the analogy of the sun, you know, like the sun shining without effort benefiting others spontaneously, these type of things these type of images. Many people are involved with uh, Dzogchen, so I should point out again a little bit of uh, an aside, the difference between clear light and Rikpa. Clear light is this uh, subtlest level of mind, either with or without the stains of the habits and tendencies of, you know, that are there because of ignorance, karmic tendencies, because you get to clear light at the time of death as well. It still has all these tendencies and habits imputed on them, on it. It could be without that, and when we speak of it without these uh, stains or taints, that's rikpa. So Rikpa is a sub, and there are many different levels of Rikpa and types of Rikpa, no need to go into that, but a general difference between the two is, uh, is that. So, real thing Tantra is speaking about uh, emulating this process of death, going down to the, this clear light level, or Rikpa level, if you're doing this in uh, Dzogchen style. And instead of uh, activating these various karmic tendencies, because you still have ignorance, what you want to do is to, you know, described going down two staircases into the basement, you know, one staircase into the basement. You don't want to go up back up that staircase. You want to change the fuses and go up the enlightenment uh, staircase. So in meditation, we can go up to a pathway level of that staircase. In other words, uh, imagine, well, there's two levels of that development stage, a generation stage or a creation stage, however you want to translate it and the complete stage or completion stage. Again, many ways of translating it. Generation stage. So we, at that point, just in our meditation, we, uh, we are not really able to get down to the clear light level, so we imagine it. And uh, we uh, only have some conceptual understanding of voidness. We, of course, have some level of bodhicitta. And we want to then uh, arise in our meditation in the form of this yidam, something similar to what we will achieve. So that's usually done in two steps. 
a simple form and a more complex form like Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya. And on the complete stage, one explanation of why it's complete is that now everything is complete to be able to actually generate some sort of uh, facsimile of a Buddha body, form body, out of the energy winds, the subtle winds. So it's complete. So not quite completion that you're completing what you did before, but uh, more in the sense of now everything is ready. And so this is the second stage in which uh, in our meditation we go down to that you know, clear light level, either almost to it or to it, but we're not able to sustain it like you would as a Buddha. And then out of that subtle energy wind, we make some appearance. So all of that has to do with the definition of mental activity because mental activity gives rise to appearances with some cognitive engagement. So instead of giving rise to our ordinary appearances, we want to give rise to a pure appearance with this Buddha figure, mandala, which is the environment which we uh, are manifesting. Everything, you know, we can see around us in terms of not only Buddha, you know, Yidam and pure appearance coming on the basis of our own Buddha natures, focusing on the not yet happening enlightenment, but we can also do that with everybody on the basis of their Buddha nature. So you see how this ties in with compassion as well, love and compassion and the equality of everyone, equanimity. So we can see this with everybody. And so you get that uh, pure appearance. Now there are many ways of working with that. So we look at the various explanations, you know, and sakya, inseparable samsara, nirvana. These are, uh, what should I say, this is a clear light level and uh, we can differentiate it in terms of either a samsaric appearance or a nirvana appearance, but both of them are, have the same nature of an appearance, an appearance-making function of, the, of mental activity. It's not that when we're doing these uh, visualizations of everything pure around us that you can't cross the street because you're going to be hit by a car. It's not like that. But it's almost like a superimposition that we can see both levels. And then it's a matter of which do we put the emphasis on. Otherwise you can't function. And you know, as is emphasized so much in uh, the teachings on voidness, voidness 
needs to be, or emptiness needs to be understood as meaning dependent arising. And the voidness does not uh, obstruct functionality of things, but it enables things to function. So doing these visualizations shouldn't be a method to, <laughs> you know, wipe out everything that's going on around us. But it's a way of seeing what is possible on the, in terms of the potential that everyone has and that the environment has as well. So what we want to do then is to have on that pathway level some facsimile of what will be happening with our resultant level pathway tantra either with our imagination which is on the uh, level of uh, generation stage we're generating something with our imagination we're creating something with our imagination and uh, the complete stage we were able to actually make something arise out of the subtle energies and by working with that over and over and over again getting you know, being able to prolong it longer and longer and so on, gaining deeper familiarity with all of this, building up more positive force by actually not just sitting there and meditating, but actually doing something to help others besides imagining that we are helping all others. It's not enough to just imagine that, you know, to visualize it but actually do something. And then eventually we are able to attain the enlightened state of the Buddha in which you know, all these so-called obscurations are gone. We're able to maintain this all the time on the subtlest level. So there's no, what should we say, uh, Put it another way, we've achieved true stopping of all the different subtle levels of the obscuration so that no impure appearance arises again. So you can see very clearly that renunciation is totally part of the whole uh, process. You need to renounce ordinary appearance and the ordinary rebirth process Renounce means, uh, you know, the actual word means to become certain. Yen Jung, become certain, definite. Determination, that's why I say determination to be free. Just as an aside, one asks oneself, you know, in the process of working to develop renunciation, what is the emotional state that accompanies renunciation? Remember, we have five aggregates. 
And that means that any state of mind is a composite of many, many factors. So, renunciation, what are, what are the emotion that goes with that? And sometimes you get this, uh, you know, in working with it on a practical level, you can develop a bit of anger at yourself. You know, oh, this is so stupid, you know, why am I involved with this? And, you know, like that. And you're disgusted and fed up with it. Okay, that's part of it. But being angry with it and angry at yourself for being so stupid is another disturbing emotion. Like, for instance, giving up smoking. You know, well, oh, I broke down and, uh, you know, had another cigarette. You know, I'm so annoyed with myself, so disappointed with myself really disgusted and we have a very negative view of ourself. That's not a state of mind in which you can actually develop renunciation. A state of mind <laughs> that seems to actually work is being bored. I'm so bored with getting upset, so bored with worrying, so bored with, uh, you know, being a compulsive eater, or I mean, you lose interest. And it's only when out of boredom and totally losing interest that you actually give it up. Not on the basis of anger, disgust, and so on. Then it's a more natural uh, turning away. It's a very interesting thing to think about and to work on in your own experience. Especially when we have these uncontrollably recurring problems, samsara. You have one bad relation and it breaks up and you get into another bad relation and it just, you lose your temper with this and then you lose your temper with that. And it's boring. Enough. So we need to develop that uh, renunciation, that determination to be free from all our ordinary appearance making. And then, of course, you know, Tantra weaves everything together. You have to weave everything together. It's like a puzzle. So now you bring in the tenant systems. And this is very helpful for helping us to recognize how much of the appearances, the appearance making, that uh, you know, I like to describe it as, in an, as a verbal, as an activity, making these appearances, they arise. It's not that there's something back here, like a projector making them arise, it's sort of, you know, the arising, these mental holograms. And how much of that is projection? This is what you learn from the tenet systems. You get into the whole discussion of, uh, you know, conceptual cognition versus non-conceptual. So how much is projection? And how much is so-called, as the Sautrantikas would say, objective reality? And to start to differentiate 
what's going on. Projection, very important to understand how that works. How does conceptual cognition work? It's with a category. So I have a category of uh, partner and many, many partners will fit into this category. It allows us to have the word partner, language, communications necessary. But then we have something that represents a partner. When we think of a partner, the ideal partner. And then when you look at your partner, you look at that person through, they call it a veil of what represents a partner for you. And then you get really angry because you're not like that. Why aren't you like that? You should be like that. You know? My child should be like this. My mother, my father should be like that. Why aren't you like that? You know, my job should be like this. I mean, whatever. We project it on everything. That's projection. That's what conceptual cognition is, is all about. On one level, we need conceptual cognition. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to recognize that, uh, you know, what I'm seeing in front of us, uh, in front of me, are all human beings. We're all object, you know, suffering and objects of compassion, etc. So you need that. Otherwise, I'm just seeing colored shapes. And there is, you know, the, you know, oh, well, you know, a nice collection of colored shapes are here, pixels. So you need to be, you know, to put things together in categories, and that's the basis for communication and language. But it's when we have these projections of what it should be. You should be, a, you know good disciple, good person, these sort of things, good dog, yeah, this type of thing that uh, we get into trouble. So this is the type of thing that we want to renounce. But then, of course, our visualizations are conceptual as well through a category of, you know, each time that, you know, each picture of Chenrezig, each statue of Chenrezig, each visualization of Chenrezig, it fits into the category of Chenrezig and has the name Chenrezig. So come on, that's conceptual. Otherwise, how do you put it together? How do you know that all these objects in the store are all apples? So we need that. Um, But when we have this, uh, you know, so, so you're transforming. So much of Tantra is involved with uh, transformation. So we use that conceptual process to have the visualization. But the thing that is uh, very helpful, as I mentioned, with uh, some one of the benefits of Tantra 
is that uh, rather than focusing on my body, on the body sensations and things like this, like the placement of the four, the four placements of close mindfulness that you have, um, which of course is a whole different topic and a very elaborate topic. We don't want to go there yet now. But uh, this body is changing all the time, as I was saying. So you don't have a stable object of focus because you have this pain and that pain and so on. Whereas this Buddha figure doesn't change. Doesn't, you know, it's so-called non-static, static phenomenon. So you always have the same thing to uh, come back to. And I think it's very important to also understand what is the function of these uh, Buddha figures. And to understand, and why they're in these various forms that they're in, which are pretty weird from uh, our point of view, our conventional point of view. Why would you want to arise with four arms or six arms or 24 arms and all these faces and legs and holding all these things? Is that really what, you know, what I want to do? So you look at the description of uh, the Buddha bodies. And this is another example of uh, what sometimes I uh, try to describe as uh, the process of learning the Dharma is a process of uh, getting pieces of the puzzle. And then our task is to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And the more pieces we can fit together, the larger the picture that we get. And these pieces fit together in many different ways, not just one. So you look at uh, the bodies of a Buddha. The form bodies fulfill the purposes of others and the Dharmakaya fulfills the purposes of self. And then you start to think about this. Yeah, so-called analytical meditation. This is what gets you very far. To analyze, discern, try to figure out. Yeah, this is what His Holiness the Dalai Lama always says. This is the main thing to focus on. You need some concentration, but that's the, not the main thing. That will develop. You don't have to wait until you get perfect concentration before you gain understanding. Concentration has to be with some understanding, not just concentration for the sake of concentrating. A musician can concentrate, an athlete can concentrate. A lion stalking, an antelope can concentrate. So a child playing a video game can concentrate. Understanding, this is what gets rid of, you know, ignorance. So, we want with these form bodies to be able to help others. That is the only reason 
for arising in a form. It's to fulfill the benefits of others, the aims of others. So I am arising in this form because it provides a method for others to be able to overcome suffering and reach enlightenment. That's our sole purpose. That is what drives our enlightening activity. Prefer to call it enlightening influence because the Buddha doesn't have to actually do anything. It's like the sun just exerts this enlightening influence in many ways you know, to quiet things down, to stimulate things to grow, to get things to be under control. In other words, everything in order or to forcefully stop harmful actions. These four types of influence that a Buddha that we will want to exert and that we imagine that we do in this form in the visualization. Visualization, by the way, imagination is much better way of translating it. It's not just visual. It's with all the senses. It's with the emotions. It's with everything. So we imagine that uh, we have this uh, influence and we have all these arms and legs and so on because that is a graphic representation of all the things that we want to weave together and that others will need to weave together. So I'm not generating myself in the form of a form body of a Buddha for my own sake, for my own benefit. I'm generating it for the benefit of others. So that's something to think about. You know, then it's not so weird, actually. And just as I can benefit by working with this, the point is that everybody can benefit from it and people are different and you need to be able to have, uh, um, what should we say, different figures with different numbers of arms and legs and faces, etc., because there's so many things that need to be woven together. And infographics. It's much easier to keep, let's say, there are the 37 factors, 37 practices, that uh, lead to liberation or enlightenment that are divided on these five paths, you know, path of accumulation or building up, you know, these five paths. It's common to Hinayana and Mahayana. All schools have that. Well, how do you keep that in mind? So you have a figure like uh, Vajrabhairava, also called Yamantaka, 34 arms, body, speech, and mind. Here you have 37. Or you have 36 dakinis and one in the middle, 37. So when we represent in a graphic form these various points that we need to be able to keep in mind it helps others. 
not only ourselves, but everybody, to be able to actually practice that, and that this is what others will need, these 37 practices. And you get the 37 bodhisattva practices, which is made parallel to that. So I want to arise in this form for the benefit of others. that they can use it as a method. And of course, in the process, I'm using it as a method. But we are imagining ourselves in the resultant level. We're not imagining ourselves in the pathway level, even though imagining ourselves in the resultant level is a pathway level, but you know what I mean. So, Let's think about this for a few moments. And we're talking about here Buddha nature factors. Buddha nature factors, we have the evolving factors and the abiding factors, they're called. The evolving factors are those things that will change and transform into the um, Buddha bodies that change from moment to moment. The nature never changes. That's besides the point. It's looking at it from another angle. But you know, Buddha does things all the time, so that changes from moment to moment. The Buddha is omniscient, so dealing with different things at different times. So the mind of a Buddha is also moment to moment to moment changing. Nature stays the same. So what gives rise to that are these two networks, the two collections, positive force and deep awareness. Positive force from the positive things that we've done. It can be samsara building or with dedication and uh, it can be liberation or enlightenment building. We can have a facsimile enlightenment builder. You can make this awkward phrase that it's almost like that, which means that uh, the bodhicitta, renunciation or renunciation and bodhicitta is labored. Labored means that you have to go through the line of reasoning to develop it. Everybody is, you know, equanimity. Everybody's been my mother. They've been previous lives. Everybody's been so kind. I'm so grateful. I appreciate that. I want to help in return. You know, the seven point cause and effect meditation or equalizing, exchanging self with others, that practice or one way of putting the two together. But labored means that you have to go through stage by stage and with labor generate that state of bodhicitta, love and compassion. So if we dedicate the positive force from doing something positive, something 
you know, not on the basis of disturbing emotions, you know, to the best of our ability. And we dedicate it with that labored bodhicitta. That's a facsimile of an actual enlightenment builder. The real thing, the pure, the actual pure enlightenment builder is when it's dedicated with unlabored bodhicitta. Unlabored means that we're so familiar with it that you don't have to go through the line of reasoning to generate it. You just got it in a moment. And that's when we attain the first of the five so-called paths or pathway minds. You know, it's building up. You know, from there you build up to Vipassana, Shamatha and Vipassana combined. Then you go on to the next one. Next path or pathway of mind. So, we want from that uh, network of positive force not to just have the default setting that it just improves samsara, basis level, or the network of negative force, you know, it makes a horrible samsara. But we want to at least have, you know, a facsimile, labored bodhicitta and dedication, and work to get to the pure one. And note that you don't need shamatha for this. You don't need non-conceptual cognition of emptiness or voidness. You need conceptual. You need some concentration. But those are things that you attain further on the path. Non-conceptual and actual shamatha. You could have attained it before, shamatha, but it's not obligatory for starting to build up these pure enlightenment building networks. So it's important to see where things fit on the path. So that is what will give rise to the form bodies of a Buddha, just as it gives rise to you know, our experience in terms of uh, compulsive samsara, network of positive force, our body, what we encounter, how we respond to it, some feeling of happiness, unhappiness, all of that's coming out of the network of positive force. Now, the network of deep awareness is focused on, you know, the actual things focused on the Four Noble Truths, 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths and the voidness of the 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths. It's rather complicated. And the real pure one will be when it's non-conceptual, but you know, understanding of this, that there is no, it's very important to understand what we mean by voidness of the Four Noble Truths, the 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths. This is what we're focusing on with these five pathway minds. That's it, that, that's the real thing. What does that mean? We're talking about the mind, the mental continuum of mental activity. And the mental activity is experiencing suffering, true suffering, 
not just happy, unhappy, but the recurring basis for feeling happy and unhappy. Samsara. The true cause of it are compulsive behavior driven by disturbing emotions, driven by ignorance, unawareness. So that's experience with the mental continuum, mental activity. And the true stopping is the pure nature of the mind, unstained nature of the mind. And the pure pathway or path is the understanding that will bring about the true stopping. So the voidness of that on one level, the voidness of a separate me, concrete findable me that is experiencing this. It's not that there's some separate, independently existing me that is suffering, that is ignorant and acting in some compulsive, stupid way, and that will experience, you know, enlightenment, and that develops the wisdom and understanding that brings that about. So the Four Noble Truths, as experienced by the mental continuum, is devoid of some impossible me that's experiencing the whole thing. So the mind is void of a me that's experiencing, that is, you know, what should we say? Here there's me sitting in my head, and here's the mind, which is a machine, and it's pressing the buttons, and there's experience. It's not like that. And then, of course, the voidness of the suffering and the voidness of the causes of suffering and the voidnesses, you know, of the true stopping and the voidness of the understanding. So all of that is what we're focusing on with these 37 factors. That's what's going on in the path. So, now with uh, Tantra as opposed to Sutra. Sutra, we're focusing on me with this body, four placements of close mindfulness, the body and the feelings and the mind and the, you know, the mental factors, so discriminating awareness or wisdom. And we're focusing on these with a basis that's, that's changing, that has negative associations with it. I'm so fat, I'm old, you know, I'm this and that. So it's not so stable. In other words, the mind that's doing this meditation, we can speak in this sort of dualistic way, <laughs> But uh, you know that mental activity of the, men of the uh, um, meditation has a physical basis, right? And if we're focusing on that physical basis, the voidness of that physical basis, if that you know the voidness of me and my body and you know my feelings and so on is exemplifying, you know, four noble truths. 
you know, body exemplifying true suffering, feelings true, causes of suffering, because that's what we get confused about with 12 links. Mind is exemplifying the true cessation, its purity, and the mental factors like discriminating awareness representing true path. So we're focusing like that, these placements of the four close mindfulnesses. If the basis is something which is changing and so on, the voidness of the me and of you know all of that, then we don't have such a stable object to focus on. So if you think in terms of the gross body that uh, goes through something similar to the process of death, bardo, and rebirth, and we focus on the voidness of the gross body doing that, and the me imputed on the gross body doing that, that would be more a sutra style of doing something. So Tantra, if you look at the sadhanas, what are we doing is that first you generate yourself as a Buddha figure in terms of the understanding of voidness, the voidness, the purity of the mind. And we go through that process of death, bardo, and rebirth and the voidness of you know, who's going through the death, bardo, and rebirth as the Yidam. And so you're focusing on the voidness of the Yidam, of the Buddha figure. Then when I speak about having in one mind, meaning one moment of mental activity, both causes for the mind of a Buddha and the body of a Buddha. What it is, is that you're not focusing on the voidness of the body. Either our ordinary body or the Yidam body, which has a more stable basis, which is pretty, you know, pretty good. Has its advantages, but you're focusing on voidness and the I mean, they say the mind appears in the form of a deity. You know, that is not a very precise way of understanding it. It can be quite confusing. What it is, is that here is this mental activity, and the basis of it is the Yidam. So that way you have in one mind, in one moment of mental activity, the two, the causes for body and mind of a Buddha. So you're always working with the Yidam level in Tantra. And this is what makes it very effective. One of the things that makes it very effective. So we have this network of deep awareness. So what does that do? It's, you know, ideally we want to have it, you know, for the pure enlightenment building, it's focused on the voidness of the Four Noble Truths, of me that's experiencing them and, you know, the actual content of it. But also, there are the five types of deep awareness. So-called five Buddha wisdoms, you know, that are represented by the five Dhyani Buddhas. 
that being a Western term, Jani Buddha, it's not an Indian term. So we have mirror-like awareness. This is how mental activity works, taking information, equalizing, being able to see things equally as all dogs or all apples or all equal objects of compassion. Five Buddha families. Family is the word for Buddha nature. You know, there are many words for Buddha nature, but one word is the word for caste in India, Indian uh, terminology, which, has, which is tr then translated as family. So it's the family trait. It's the characteristic of this caste or this family, this type of mental activity. And then you get five Buddha families as a uh, way of uh, talking about it in terms of the forms that represent it. So it's the equal equalizing, individualizing, you're able to you know, see the individuality of things. It's not all, you know, one big soup and accomplishing, which is uh, to do something, something. What to do, it's an engagement and dharmadhatu, which is sphere of reality, what something is conventionally in the deepest nature of things. And this is how our mind works all the time. This is how mental activity works. But of course it can be mixed with confusion and mixed with confusion then instead of you know individualizing special, I have to have it, you have greed and desire and attachment. You know, instead of equalizing, I'm better. I don't want to share in arrogance and pride and miserliness. So they get distorted into the disturbing emotions. So that's what's going on on the basis level. So we don't want that. We want to have five Buddha wisdoms, so-called. These types of deep awareness. So that's represented by the five colored lights and the five colors of the different figures in the, in the mandala. And that's something that we can try to practice on a sutra level to develop these different types of, you know, deep awareness. And we can also represent it graphically with the different colors of the mandala, the different figures of the mandala, and so on. So we have these Buddha nature factors, the evolving ones, they can evolve. Then the other Buddha nature factor is called the abiding Buddha nature factor, and abides, it means it stays the same. It's not that it's something that, you know, grows. And this refers to the void or empty nature of the mind that allows for this transformation. And in many commentaries, also the conventional nature of the mind, giving rise to holograms, mental holograms and cognitive engagement. So that's what allows the transformation and will then continue as the nature body of a Buddha. And then there's a third Buddha nature or uh, 
meant, you know, Buddha family trait. And this is that the mental continuum can be uplifted, can be inspired. Unfortunately, this word inspiration, but I'd like to, to translate as inspiration is often translated as blessing, which mixes all sorts of, you know, inappropriate associations. You know, your mind can be blessed by the holy gurus and so on. That's not at all the flavor of what we're talking about. We're talking about inspiration, uplifted, brightened, heightened. These are all the connotations that are, that are there. So this is uh, done or accomplished with the relationship with the spiritual teacher, Guru Yoga. That we have this heightening, this inspiration, thinking of the good qualities. What is the state of mind that we have toward the spiritual teacher? You have to know that. It's not devotional, Lama Lama save me. Tell me what to do, you know, I'm your slave. It's not that. The two factors that are described in that state of mind, the state of mind is confidence in the good qualities of the teacher. So I've examined the teacher, these are the good qualities, and wow, you know, that's great. It's something I'd like to achieve and appreciation of the kindness of the teacher to help us, to teach us, to show us the way. On the basis of that, we have incredible respect. That's the state of mind. And as it says in the text, you're never going to, hardly ever going to find a teacher with all good qualities, but you need one that has at least more good qualities than negative qualities, and there's no benefit of focusing on the negative qualities. My teacher doesn't have enough time for me, and you know, all of these sort of things. Because that just depresses you, complaining. Focus on the good qualities, that's what will inspire you. So the mental, you know, our mental activity can be uplifted and inspired to higher levels, brighter and brightened. And another place where it gets uplifted is the empowerment, the initiation. Where through the ambiance of the uh, empowerment, the environment, and the, the tantric master, who's, you know, you're seeing, the, trying to at least visualize the tantric master in the form of the yidam and everything around you as the uh, mandala, yourself in various enlightening forms. This is inspiring. So it uh, activates. This is the whole point, that these Buddha nature factors can be activated. You know, we have so many dormant, you know, the beginningless time. So there's a tremendous amount of tendencies and potentials and so on. So the initiation is going to activate more of these positive things you have the appropriate state of mind, you know, not just sitting there like a zombie. But uh, it's going to activate that so it can be uplifted, inspired. So more seeds are planted, 
said figuratively, and you get some conscious experience. This is what the great Drigon Kagyu master said. You need some conscious experience of some feeling of emptiness with a blissful with a blissful mind. Even if it's just on the level of, you know, I'm really happy to be here and, you know, nothing here, you know, exists solidly, you know, this solid me and solid you and I'm this poor worm down here and here's this guru, you know, and so up high and wonderful up there. You know, none of that. So that in connection with, you know, the whole presence of the guru, the real one, and the atmosphere, etc., uplifts. So that is part of Buddha nature, that Buddha nature is that these networks can be given a boost, in a sense. So this is wonderful. So what we want then is for this whole process of these networks on the basis of the nature of the mind, instead of it giving rise to more and more suffering and samsara, we want on the path for it to give rise to these Buddha figures, which we generate as, you know, with compassion, representing a not yet in achieved enlightenment, not yet happening enlightenment, bodhicitta. We can only arise on the basis of the voidness of the mind and the conventional nature of the mind. Mahamudra style. We want to do it that way. And it's to enable others to follow this path. Weave everything together so that eventually as a Buddha I'm able to do that. And now I focus on having the qualities of a Buddha, so enlightening body, enlightening speech, so the mantras, uh, enlightening mind, the understanding of two truths, bodhicitta, you know, everything simultaneously, and enlightening activity. So exerting this enlightening influence on everyone, making offerings and benefiting everyone so with the colored lights representing these different types of Buddha activity, or enlightening influence, and a pure environment, so all the purities. Everything around is pure. What does that mean? Like a pure land. A pure land is a place where everything is conducive for spending 24 hours, <laughs> seven days a week, hearing the teachings, thinking about them, meditating on them. That's all you do in a pure land. It's not that you hang out at the swimming pool and play cards. It's not a paradise. And there are you know, Manakaya, Sambhogakaya, Dharmakaya levels of pure lands. You know, so the deepest one is the clear light nature of the mind. When you go to that pure land where that's the most conducive for attaining enlightenment. So different levels of pure lands. Another point that I should bring up is with the mandala. We're the whole thing. 
the me is imputed on the whole thing, not just the central figure. Not just, you know, if it's a couple, not just on one, one of the couple. We're both. And we're all the figures as well, and we're the building too. If you think about that, then of course I'm not just the, my digestive system, I'm not just the you know, respiratory system, made up of many, many parts and many systems interacting. So you look at all these figures in the mandala and they're representing the elements of the body and the aggregates of the body and the sense objects and the you know, motion, you know, the uh, arms and legs and you know, all of this. And the parts of the building, you know, the four gateways or the four placements, of, you know, close mindfulness. And, you know, everything has uh, you know, the five layers of the wall, the five types of deep awareness. They all represent something. Infographics. So when doing these uh, visualizations, you know, Imagining, you imagine, me is imputed on the whole thing. It's not that, you know, I mean, otherwise you get into this weird trip that, you know, a solid me is this one side of this couple, and what about the other side, and, you know, all of that. And then what's the point of view? Am I facing in this direction and I can only see in front of me or am I facing in the other direction? And, you know, none of that. I'm not talking about, you know, seeing things with eyes. It's an incredible opening of the mind to imagine the whole thing. It's like, for instance, can you, are you aware of what your face looks like? And from what point of view? From inside your head, from looking in a mirror, from outside looking at you? Ooh, you, know, you start to get pretty weird when you start to think, you know, how do you visualize your face? And imagine your face, you know, have three faces or five, or, or you know, four faces. So all of this is you know, there are methods to be able to learn how to do that. You know, you put your hand on your, f on your face and then you take it away and you say, you know, well, can you feel a face? Yes, I feel a face. So you can be aware of a face and then put it on the side of your head. And can, you, can you be aware of the side of your head? Yes. Uh, can you imagine their faces there? Yes. How about the back of your head? Yes. Put your hand on the top of your head, take it away. Can you be aware of the top of your head? Sure, there's Vajrasattva, top of your head. So there are many ways to learn how to, you know, can you be aware that you are in a room with four walls and that there's a wall behind you? Do you see it with your eyes? No. Are you aware that there's a wall behind you? Yes, you can be aware of that. So this is how you work with, you know, visualization. It's training the imagination. This is what's going on. 
with Tantra, where the whole thing is imputed on the whole thing. And as a Buddha, imagining that now we're a Buddha, we have all of this in mind, speech is mantra, you know, the deepest mantra, as I said yesterday, you know, the most powerful one is Prajnaparamita, understanding of voidness, of, you know, the whole path. That's the most powerful mantra, the mantra that surpasses all, you know, the Heart Sutra. Then there are all these other mantras. Fine. And the lights going out and benefiting others, making offerings, building up more positive force in the environment and everything. So this is uh, something to think about. <laughs> Take a few moments to catch your breath and uh, let a little bit of that sink in. I think one of the main points to uh, take from what uh, I've said this morning, we've covered, or I've covered, an enormous amount of things uh, this morning. And of course, it's not uh, easy or even possible, perhaps, to keep that all in mind and to uh, really digest that. However, what you get from this is a sense of how Tantra weaves together all the points of the Dharma, of Sutra. It's a way of putting it all together and working with the whole thing. Conclusion? You can't possibly do it effectively unless you have really put a great deal of effort in the sutra teachings. The shared preparatory practices shared between sutra and tantra. Without that, what are you doing? You know, just going on some fantasy trip. And as I explained, if we're not there yet, we don't have all the pieces, focus on all the pieces, you know, gaining the pieces of the puzzle that you can fit, you know, weave together on the loom of Tantra and use what we can, you know, easily use from the Tantra practice, mantra, recitation, having a little bit more positive self-image figure in front and gain inspiration. Inspiration, you know, focusing on the good qualities of a spiritual teacher, the spiritual teacher, the wonderful one here, 
as good qualities. Focus on the good qualities, appreciation of the kindness of teaching us. Help in whatever way one can to enable him to better help others. And this uplifts, inspires, builds up more positive force. As was asked yesterday, you know, as a community, build up more positive force by helping each other. Being kind toward each other. And don't uh, minimize or uh, put that, you know, let's, I can't think of the proper word. Um, minimize for, for want of a better word uh, how sophisticated Tantra is and how advanced it is. And then one has respect for it. And in order to practice Tantra effectively it's important to understand how it actually works, what makes it so profound and have respect for it then you can have respect for yourself practicing it. It's not magic. You know, not just some exotic trip. But it is a incredibly sophisticated system. And the other thing to watch out for is that uh, you can become fascinated by the details. And that's seductive. You know, and then you get hung up on, you know, what does the jewelry that Avalokiteshvara is wearing, um, stuff like that. And then all you want are the little details and you lose the picture. And you lose the, the larger picture of what you're doing. Sirkin Rinpoche used to uh, characterize that by one question that one Westerner asked him once, which was, uh, does Dorji Pamo have a belly button? Which is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, the belly button, you know, the navel. Um, you know, come on. <laughs> That's not the point of the practice. And these mandalas and these figures, especially when you get into something as complex as Kama Chakra, is so incredibly beautiful and intricate and elaborate and fascinating that you can get completely sidetracked into worrying about all the tiny, tiny little details. And as Tsongkhapa said, in terms of how you meditate in a mandala, get the whole thing going in general. It's not going to be clear. You're not going to have the details. And then as your concentration improves, you'll come more and more in focus. Important point is to 
turn away from ordinary appearance and appearance making and ordinary grasping at it to be, you know, uh, self-established, truly existent, the way it appears. Turn from that, understanding that it is not self-established at all, dependent, arising, etc. And then have something pure, even if it's just, you know, light. Something pure, not your ordinary appearance making, and set what's known as the pride of the deity. Pride of the deity, literally, it's a term means imputing me on that. Of course, to do that, you have to understand what it means that me is imputed on that. We gave the example of the series of photographs of ourself spanning our life. And me is something that, you know, it's not just in your imagination. It is, as our Sautrantika friends would say, objective, you know, it's me, it's not somebody else, it's not nobody. But it's just an imputation, the only thing that you can establish. What establishes it? Well, there's the word me, there's concept me, everybody agrees and so on, so it refers to something. That's the only way to establish that there is such a thing as me, but, and it functions. You can't establish it from the side of these pictures that. So, imputation of the me on this, that this is the enlightened state that I'm aiming to achieve that has not yet happened, but which can happen on the basis of my Buddha nature factors of bodhicitta. I'm doing this to benefit everybody, because these are forms that will benefit others. And that's enough. Difficult enough to do that. And don't get hung up on all the details of the visualization. Otherwise, it becomes an obstacle. You know, I can't visualize all the figures on the guru tree, and then, uh, you know, when you get discouraged, and you don't even do prostrations or whatever, because you're too hung up on, you know, all the different figures on the tree. Just something there. On the state of mind, imputation. This is the objects of refuge. You do prostration. You know, always recognize what is the most essential aspect of the practice. Focus on that. The rest will come with concentration, practice, etc., familiarity. Okay? So, a few moments perhaps of letting this sink in. Then we have a few moments for questions and we can have more questions in the afternoon.
as I said, to, what to, to take away from this whole morning discussion is that everything does fit together in Tantra. And the more pieces we can fit together, the more profound it becomes. Okay. Also, because it is so complex, and because there are so many layers and levels of uh, what's involved with Tantra practice, then when you take a commitment to do a daily practice for the rest of your life, which is the real thing, Tantra, then uh, actually it's not so bad. It's not that it becomes boring because there's so much more that can be added to it. And so over a lifetime of uh, practicing it, more and more familiarity, more and more things are added into it. That take on, you know, substance in the practice as you work continuing with uh, sutra material, working further and further with bodhicitta, with voidness, with you know the six far-reaching attitudes. You know, those are the six arms of you know these six-armed figures, and so on. So then it's always can be new and fresh. And it will take a lifetime, it will take more than a lifetime to be able to master these things and don't get discouraged. Samsara goes up and down. Sometimes the meditation goes well, sometimes it's horrible. Sometimes you have tons of mental wandering, sometimes less. 
Just persevere. Doesn't matter. Do it. Discipline. Self-discipline. Perseverance. Patience. Generosity. Giving your time to this. Concentration. Discriminating awareness so that you have some understanding of what you're doing. Perfect practice of the six paramitas. All of that's put together. Tantra. So, what questions do you have? Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could say something about, you can call it the psycholo psychology of the wrathful forms. And, and for example, maybe we as a Sangha lack uh, an appreciation of a wrathful teacher. Can you say something about that? Well, yes. <laughs> First of all, uh, again, translation, connotation of the word. Wrathful means that they're really angry and disturbed and so on. I prefer forceful. Forceful. So when you visualize yourself as one of these forceful figures, it's, you know, stop acting like a baby. Get yourself together. Stop being so selfish. You know, being forceful with yourself. And then they're stamping on all these, you know, figures that represent your disturbing emotions. Trample it. So this forceful aspect is something which is, uh, you know, cut through all the, the crap type of thing. You know, get real. Burst that balloon of, you know, your fantasies that everything's going to be so nice and wonderful. You know, like that. So this is one of the Buddha activities, you know, the way that uh, enlightening influence that when things are really tough, you need to be forceful, very energetic, strong energy, but not, a, not angry, not angry, or wrathful in that sense. Connotation of words are very helpful. In terms of a teacher, <laughs> well, I forget who it was, was that, uh, you know, Naropa or somebody like that, that, you know, you know, Tilopa, you know, being hit by a stick, you know, and this is, you know, by the teacher, and this is, you know, most incredible, compassionate thing to do. So the teacher, example of my own teacher, Sirkin Rinpoche, I was with him, served him, you know, as a translator and secretary, you know, foreign secretary and arranged all his trips and all this stuff. He only thanked me twice in nine years. And all the time, his favorite name for me was Idiot. <laughs> and he mercis mercilessly pointed out whenever I acted like an idiot, which I did quite frequently. So he was very forceful with me, but also incredibly kind. 
because you totally trained me. And trained me not by, you know, I came from an arrogant background, you know, top student at the top university, Harvard. And it was very helpful to be pointed out what an idiot I was, and probably still am. So, you know, praising me all the time wouldn't have helped at all. It would have made it worse. Thanking me all the time, you know. I'm not doing it to be thanked, you know, not to get a pat and wag my tail. Doing it to help him help others, period. Full stop. And being forceful with me was very, very effective. It wasn't like that with others. For some people, if they have low self-esteem, you don't want to be forceful. You don't want to you know, point out that they're an idiot. You want to uplift them, praise them. But for someone with arrogance, they need to be put down. So teachers are different. I mean, really qualified teachers, not ones that uh, are called teacher but still have a lot of disturbing emotions, so they really are angry. But uh, teachers can be so, you know, when you, you are with them, when they are with various people, like a, being a translator, you see how totally different they are with each person. Following the example of Buddha, skillful methods designed individually for each person who comes. Yeah. Yes. But you have to check out a teacher very well because there are many who are abusive and who pretend you know, to be teachers who are not qualified. So that's why you need to really check the teacher first and not just get into this dreamy-eyed thing, oh, they're all Buddhas and, you know, whatever they do is, is enlightening, you know, it's crazy wisdom. That's no excuse. There was the, uh, the famous <laughs> example, uh, you know, at the, there was a Western Teachers Conference with His Holiness the Dalai Lama many years ago, in which uh, when these uh, scandals uh, of you know, sexual abuse of teachers was uh, very com you know, first coming out in the public. And so what was suggested by one of the people there was, uh, pardon the language, the shit test. If they are really, you know, so highly developed, you know, with crazy wisdom and so on, you know, then they should be able to transform, you know, shit and pus and blood and urine and so on, you know, into nectar and so give them a plate of shit and see if they can eat it <laughs> as a test to see, you know, are they at that level of crazy wisdom? Otherwise, they're abusive. His Holiness was quite amused. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You talked about how one could get lost in the fascination about all the details. Yes. 
I had the exact opposite reaction when I first was introduced to Vajrasattva. Mm. And all the details and long mantras and colors and prostrations. Mm -hmm. And I really, really backed out. Because mm -hmm. this was just too much. Mm -hmm. It was like I had been trying to empty out and empty out and empty out. And now I had to take all this stuff into my room and into my house and fill it up and fill it up and fill it up. And some of this reaction is still with me. I've mm. had various initiations, but I've never been able to really go into a, a, a practice around the yidams. And then at the time I came to a practice where there was an uh, inner refuge, not only the outer refuge, the Buddha Dharma Sangha, but there was an inner refuge in the stillness of the body, the, uh, the silence of the mind, and the, the silence of the speech, and the spaciousness of the mind. And in this, I felt that I could do some of the practice of taking the Buddha nature into me and being reminded in this inner refuge, instead of having going through all these details, which just pushed me off. Could you comment on this? Well, yes, one could have uh, either, you know, the fascination with the detail or the horror <laughs> at uh, the detail. This is why... I was saying that I find uh, Tsongkhapa's advice very helpful, that just get something very general, you know, just a yellow light or, you know, something like that. It doesn't have to be the detail. The essence of Vajrasattva is not his jewelry. The essence of it is, uh, you know, the state of mind of the, for, you know, four opponent forces. You know, acknowledging the mistaken things that we've done, regret, try not to repeat it, etc. This is what's going on, you know. And uh, not get hung up either on fascination or horror at the details. Then, as you progress, life is complex, so practices are complex. You know, it's not that everything is simple. It's not. If you look at life, life is complex. So many things going on, there's so many people, everybody has their own problems, you want to be able to help everybody, it's unbelievably complicated. So, that doesn't mean that we jump into the whole thing all at once. And it is important to have a you know, quiet mind and the spaciousness and to acknowledge that spaciousness, but just the spaciousness is not sufficient at all because still disturbing emotions and you know, all this other stuff will come up point is to understand emptiness you know that uh, or voidness that uh, the way in which we imagine things to exist does not correspond to reality you know that you are inherently a terrible person or I am inherently this or that All of that stuff has to be cleared out with understanding. Then the understanding and the spaciousness comes to the same point. Then it works. Then it works. 
And don't get uh, hung up with the details. That's not, you know, hung up by it can be either fascinated or horrified. There are details. Life is complicated. When we are, you know, as we gradually grow, we're able to deal with more and more complexities of life. You know, a little child deals with fairy tales and, you know, very simple. They don't have to deal with uh, how do you run a business or how do you, you know, raise a family. They're just playing. They play house. And then gradually, more and more responsibility, more and more detail comes. So I think the approach that you're taking is good. It's helpful, but uh, what you need to work on is not to be horrified by, you know, the detail. The detail is there, but it's not the essence. Yeah. So this brings us to lunch hour. We'll continue at one fifteen.